titled All the Feels Today. And if you've been here for the majority of the last eight weeks, you know that we've covered the gamut of human emotion. We've been rooted in the Psalms. We've covered the highs and the lows. We've ridden the roller coaster up and down, much like our emotions take us throughout the day. And uh, today we're finishing up that series. Um, And, you know, Father's Day... Interestingly enough, we mentioned this on Mother's Day, it carries with it a lot of different emotions. It carries with it positive emotions like the appreciation, the love, the affection, the honor, the respect that we feel towards our fathers uh, in many cases. But we also understand that, that Father's Day might bring some, some more difficult emotions, uh, maybe a longing or sorrow or regret or maybe even anger or fear. Uh, we, are, we are complicated emotional beings and uh, we don't have single emotional responses to everything that happens to us. Sometimes they're mixed. And, uh, and so today we're going to look at this idea of trusting God and trusting other, focusing on the emotion of trust, the, that feeling of, of trusting someone or something. And wrapped up in that are, are emotions like honor and respect and reverence and submission as we think about trusting God, trusting our earthly fathers, trusting other people that we're in relationship with. And so as we do that, uh, we'll see some parallels, and we'll sort of use Father's Day as a launch pad into that, kind of like we did with Mother's Day, kind of like we did with Memorial Day. When there's a tie there, we want to leverage that because it's on our minds, and it helps bring that uh, Scripture home into our hearts. Uh, But we do see throughout Scripture the frequency and the importance of trusting and fearing God, and we can see those parallels in our earthly relationships, in our relationships with our fathers um, and those other men in our lives that have contributed to our lives. So when we think about trust, we're talking about it as a feeling, an emotional response to someone or something. It's a belief or a judgment or even the conclusion that someone or something is indeed trustworthy, reliable, truthful, and able to do what they have said they would do. So when we think about trust, we need to think about it from that standpoint. And it's a good feeling. It's good to feel like you trust someone. It's good to be in a relationship with someone that you trust and to feel that sense of trust. But there is an inherent risk associated with extending trust to someone or something. What if they prove to not be trustworthy? And now you have feelings of betrayal, feelings of loss, feelings of of embarrassment potentially that can be wrapped up in that. So So I came across something this week that I found to be fascinating, and I wanted to share it with you. I don't expect you to be able to read every word on this color wheel of emotions, but maybe you've seen something like this. Uh, Maybe you want to Google this when you get home and Google the color wheel of emotions and look at it in the interrelatedness. This is something that a psychologist named Robert Pluchik came up with. And you see there's, there's three circles, or four circles. The, the core emotions are the, the second circle. So the inside emotions are the most intense. The next circle are what we would call core emotions. He's got eight of them. And then as it moves out from there, there are less intense expressions of that core emotion. So since you can't read that, I blew it up uh, for the part that I want to look at in particular. And this, you've got joy in the yellow, trust in the light green, and uh, fear in the dark green. And there's some really interesting relationships between joy and trust and fear. And you see that trust is right in between joy and fear. And trust plus joy makes love. That's when we can feel that, that sense of love and that deep, deep love towards another person and feel the love from another person is when there is trust and when there is joy. 
Now, if you move over to the other side, to that darker green, you see that trust and fear equals submission. When we trust something that is worthy of our respect, worthy of our reverence, worthy of paying attention to, we can submit, we can choose to submit to that. And so you see how trust is sandwiched right between joy and fear and plays an essential role in our ability to love God and others and our ability to submit to God and to others. Fascinating interrelatedness between love and trust and joy and fear and submission. And, uh, and it's right in the middle. And it's interesting because Solomon, right at the beginning of Proverbs, the, the whole book of the Bible that is focused entirely on wisdom, what does he say in verse 7 of chapter 1 of the book of Proverbs? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So he's focusing in there. And the rest of the Bible seems to be focused on this love that God has for us, this inclination towards us, this desire that he has for us to be in relationship with him, to bless us and to encourage us and to draw us into relationship with him, such that the songwriter said, trust and obey, trust and obey. For there is no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. And so you see how trust is woven through all of this. In fact, uh, Christian psychologist Henry Cloud, who's a phenomenal psychologist, he's written multiple books. I've read many of them. I've heard him speak. I've been in small settings. I've had the privilege of, of asking him questions and having him answer them. And he is so biblically rooted. He so often answers his questions right out of Proverbs or Psalms or out of the New Testament. And he understands this stuff so well. And he said of trust, he said, trust opens the door to all good things. Mistrust blocks you from good things. Misplaced trust opens the door to all bad things. Therefore, learn trust. Now, when I first heard that, I thought, is he doing a little bit of hyperbole here? You know, all, all's kind of a big word. You know, when you look up the Greek word of all, it means all, okay? It means everything. So, like, all good things are rooted in trust and accessed through trust, And then I pondered that for a little bit, and I thought back to the fall. I thought back to what we know about the fall of mankind from grace. And I thought, if they had just trusted God, all good things were available to them. All good things were accessible through their trust in God. And it was when they misplaced their trust in the serpent instead of God that opened the door to all bad things. And the mistrust that they had in their relationship with God blocked them from good things. You see, prior to the fall, there was only the knowledge of good. It was all good. We say that kind of tongue-in-cheek. Oh, it's all good. No, literally, before the fall, it was all good. There was no evil. It was all good. He said, if you eat of the tree that I have said not to eat of, then you will know and have the knowledge of good and evil. Prior to that, it was only good. And so it was the mistrust in God and the misplaced trust in the serpent that opened the door to all bad things. Now, if we apply that to our own relationships and the subject that we have today of trusting God and trusting others, we will see that when we trust God and when we take him at his word and we don't settle for believing in God, we actually choose to believe God, to study his word, to know what it says and to do what it says and we trust him and we add that reverence and awe in who he is and we choose to submit, to trust and obey, it opens the door to all good things. 
It opens the door to all truly good things. In fact, James said that every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, in whom there is no shadow or turning. So you might be trusting God for a Mediterranean cruise, or you might be trusting God for a million dollars, you might be trusting God for this or for that thing, but that might not be the best thing for you. And every truly good and perfect gift comes from God when we choose to trust Him and live life according to His ways, according to His Word. And the same is true when we trust others, when we trust the right people, when we trust God and we learn His ways and we seek to be in step with His Spirit and we reverence and obey Him and we study His Word and we, de- we get a discerning spirit and we learn who to trust and we trust the people that are indeed trustworthy. That opens the door to all good things in relationship. That opens the door to love. That opens the door to belonging. That opens the door to additional trust. That opens the door to all kinds of positive things. And then I believe we're able to start to trust God with others. Because we trust Him. Because we don't just believe in Him, but we actually believe Him. Believe that what He says is best and is right. Then we learn to trust God with others. We learn to trust God with our relationships, with the people that we care about. And we can trust God with our children. And we can trust God with our parents. And we can trust God and take the risk of trusting others, knowing that ultimately God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So, so if we trust him first and foremost, and we make ourselves vulnerable to trust others that come into our lives, that we can trust them as well, that God will work those things out. So I want to look at, uh, at a psalm, as we've been doing. I want to look at Psalm 62. If you've got one of our hardcover blue Bibles in your hands, uh, that is on page 898. If you brought a Bible in with you, even better. I open up to Psalm 62. We're going to read this. I'm going to read all the way through it, as I usually do. And then we'll focus on a few verses in particular and see what they have to teach us about trusting God and trusting others. Here's what David says in Psalm 62. We're told that this psalm is for Jeduthun, and we don't know who Jeduthun is necessarily, um, but we know that this psalm was written for uh, a person named Jeduthun. Here's what David says, My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. And after that little preface, he speaks to his oppressors or to those that are after him or who are coming at him as enemies. He says, how long will you salt a man? Would you over, would you, would all of you throw him down? This leaning wall, this tottering fence. They fully intend to topple him from his lofty place. Today they take delight in lies and their mouths, with their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. Now he speaks to himself in light of that. Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. Now He speaks to the congregation. Now He speaks to the assembly in this case. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to Him, for God is our refuge. Lowborn men are but a breath, the highborn are but a lie. If weighed on the balance, they are nothing. Together, they are only a breath. Do not trust in extortion or take pride in stolen goods. So your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. And now he addresses God himself. One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard, that you, O God, are strong, and that you, O God, are loving. Surely you will reward each person 
according to what he has done. This is God's word. Now, I want to look at verse 1 and 2 in particular as we get this whole thing started. as sort of a preface uh, to this psalm. And he says, Find my soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. And I want to tell you that can't underscore the importance of getting your soul to a place that it finds rest in God alone. In God alone. Not God plus anything. But God alone. And Beth Moore has said in one of her studies on David and the life of David, she says, God alone can be a painful place to get to, but it's a wonderful place to stay. God alone can be a painful place to get to. It certainly was for me. But it is a wonderful, wonderful place to stay. And looking back on my life, there have been various times when I sort of thought I was at a place of God alone. Like it was all God. God was, you know, it was it. It was just me and God, God alone. And then the sand between me and God got stripped away and I fell down to where he truly was, my rock and my refuge and my salvation. And I say that with the awareness that it could happen again, that, that, that some layer could be removed between me and God and I could find a new level of God alone. But I think the fear that we have is that if it's really God alone, is that going to be enough? And the reality that I have experienced is, is that the saying is true. When he's all you have, then he will truly be all you need. And when you come to the end of yourself and you stop putting your trust in people or in money or in power or in your career or in any of those other things, and it's just you and God, you find that he is more than enough. That he is truly the constant throughout your entire life. That everything else has come and gone, but God has been there, has been that reliable rock, that refuge. And that when you get to him and him alone, you will not be shaken. You will not be shaken. Getting to that place can be painful, but it is a wonderful place to stay. Because everything that we trust in in place of God will eventually disappoint us. When you take God off of the place that he belongs and you put anything else there, eventually it is going to disappoint you. Now, it may appear to be a good decision in the short term. And that's often the way temptation works. And we put, we put some idol in the place of God. And we worship money or sex or drugs or, or power or some other thing in place of God. And eventually it will disappoint. It will fail us. But when God is our source of rest, when it's God alone that is the source of our rest, and our hope and our trust is entirely in him, we will not be shaken. We will not be disappointed. And so we can either wrestle all our lives with the unmet expectations of the things that we put in place of God, or we can intentionally rest in God alone. The choice is ours. The choice is ours. I want to look also at uh, verses 5 through 7. This is where David is addressing himself, and he sort of restates verses 1 and 2 as he speaks to him, himself, as he speaks to his soul. There are enemies, they are attacking, they are seeking to topple him, to bring him down. And in response to that reality, he says, Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. I will not be shaken. This, this 
command to find rest as he tells his his soul find rest it means to stop it means to cease it means to quiet yourself and to wait in him he commands himself to hope in God alone because God is the refuge God is the salvation God is the fortress and he says in God alone and I think he's pointing us to a really important principle that we must not allow ourselves to expect horizontally in our relationships what can only come vertically from our relationship with God. When you start to expect rest and hope and and salvation and refuge in earthly relationships at the expense of your relationship with God, you're setting yourself up for disappointment and you're setting that other person or thing up for failure. We are to find rest in Him and Him alone. Don't expect horizontally what can only come vertically. We have a vertical relationship with God. We put our hope and our rest and our trust in Him and Him alone, first and foremost, and anything else that we trust in flows out of that. And the order is absolutely essential because there are many, many fine people that you probably know and you probably hold in high regard, but they will make terrible gods. They will make terrible gods. There are many fine husbands and fathers that make terrible, terrible gods. There are many fine mothers and wives that make terrible gods. There are many fine pastors that make terrible gods. Don't expect horizontally what you can only find vertically. There are many wonderful politicians. Well, (laughs) maybe not. There's a few decent politicians. They all make terrible gods. They make terrible saviors. And year after year, election cycle after election cycle, we say, that's the one that's going to save us. And we put all of our hope and all of our trust in these fallible human beings, and they fail because they cannot help but fail when we put them in the place that only God belongs. And there are many, many wonderful leaders and teachers and coaches that make terrible gods. Make sure that your hope Your rest is in God and God alone. He moves on from there. In verse 7, he says that my honor is dependent upon God. My honor, my salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock and my refuge. And you see, if we don't put our honor and our, our need to be honored solely in God and God alone, then we will be led around by the honor that people give us. And we become very easy to manipulate as we seek to be honored by someone else. And I've fallen trap in this, and I think maybe men are more uh, susceptible to this. We, we tend to deal in codes of honor and respect, and you see it in the military, and you see it in fraternal organizations, you see it in the police force, fire department. It's a good thing that there's honor, and you don't leave anyone behind in all of these different things. There's a language and a culture of honor in these areas, and that's not a bad thing. But if we put that Above the honor that we have from God, God saying, you are worth dying for. He honored each and every person in this room when he sent his son to die for your sins because it was unacceptable that you would be separated from him forever. He honored you entirely. And so the psalmist, David, understands this, that his honor is not dependent upon his enemies. It's not dependent upon his friends. His honor depends on God and the worth that God has placed in him and the worth that God sees in him. And so much that that God doesn't just defend my honor, God defines my honor. My honor is defined by God. And it's higher than the honor that any other person or any other human being can give it. In fact, 
I must learn and you must learn to desire God's honor and his definitions of honor over and above any other definition of honor. Moving on, as, as he transitions now in verse 8 to speak to the congregation, he sort of cries out. And we can't see the emotion necessarily in, in the black and white letters on the page, but anytime you see that O oh, in, oh, my people, cry out to God, uh, you see that throughout, trust in him at all times, oh, people, that oh kind of represents an outburst of emotion typically in Scripture, that, that there's a welling up or an emotional response. Trust in him, this God, this refuge, this strength, this God, trust in him, oh, people, not just me, David's saying, all of us, not just me, the king, but all of us, if we would trust in him, if we would pour out our hearts to him on a regular basis, morning, noon, and night, if we would pour out our hearts to him, and trust in him and put our hope in him. He would be our refuge. Trust in him at all times. This word trust is the Hebrew word batak. And like so many Hebrew words, it's a word picture. And it means to throw yourself. He's saying throw yourself before God. Throw yourself down. Pay homage to him. Pay honor to him. Make yourself completely vulnerable before him. Pay honor to him by throwing yourself down. Reverence and awe is all wrapped up in this word batak that we translate as trust. Trust in him. Surrender to him. Submit to him. Be open before him. Be vulnerable. And then he says, pour out your heart. Don't just trust him. Pour out your heart to him. Pour out your heart. This is prayer. This is the best prayers are when we're pouring out our hearts to God, when we're pouring out so that he can fill it up. We pour out our hearts to God, and then we receive from God, from his word, and it fills us back up. And I would even go so far as to say, pour out your heart to God. Get, your, get stuff off your chest with God so that you don't do it with people. You know, if you got something to get off your chest... The Psalms show us we can take every emotion that we have. We can take our fear. We can take our anger. We can take our love. We can take our joy. We can take it all to God. And we can pour out our hearts to him. And we can get stuff off our chest with God so that we don't end up getting our stuff off our chest with people. This is called gossip. And Paul says not to do it over and over in the New Testament. And I wish I could stand here and say, well, there's no gossip happening at Linwood. There's no gossip happening in the American church. There's no gossip happening in Christianity. But that's not the truth. In fact, when we gathered as a local board of administration back in the fall and we were identifying in, a, in an off-site retreat environment, we were identifying what are the greatest strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats at Linwood. One of the greatest threats and one of the greatest weaknesses at Linwood, and I would say this is probably true for most churches, was the presence of gossip. Was the, when people got to get, get stuff off their chest with somebody else. Oh, I'm just venting. Oh, you're gossiping. Oh, did you hear about? We really need to pray for such and such. Now, as your pastor, I don't hear much gossip, and that's probably a good thing, but I hear about an awful lot of gossip. It comes back around to me. And the problem with gossip, the problem that is so insidious with gossip is even if you know that it's wrong, you don't usually say anything. And you know why most people will not say anything to a gossiper? Because they know the second I confront that person for being a gossiper, they're going to go to somebody else and gossip about me. And it's fear. It's fear that keeps us from confronting gossip. And so I want to encourage you, and I want to empower you, and I want to embolden you to tell people to stop when they stop, when they start gossiping. Tell them to stop. Say that doesn't have a place in the Christian church. You have something to get off your chest? Get it off with God. Pray about it. And if that doesn't resolve it, 
then you go to that person, you go to the individual, and you honor the individual by bringing that issue up with them. And if that doesn't work, Matthew 18 is all about this process. You go with somebody else after you've gone to that person first. And you don't go build a little, a little committee to go with you. You go to one person and say, I had this issue. I was wondering if you could help with it. You go back to that person. That's when you lay it out on the table so that they have an opportunity. And you work through and you bring reconciliation. And we become people of reconciliation instead of people of gossip. Sorry, side note. But pouring out your heart to God has all things to do with the soul and the spirit. Getting things off your chest by gossiping or venting to somebody else is a function of the ego. It's a function of the flesh. It doesn't have a place in God's church. And we need to eradicate it the best that we can. All right, verse 9 and 10. This is an interesting couple of verses here, but it basically identifies the things that we ought not to be trusting in. Verse 9 and 10 says, you know, don't put your trust... In people, these lowborn men, they're but a breath. The highborn, even though they're highborn, they're just a lie. They don't last. They're not eternal. If the weight and the balance, they're nothing. Together, they're only a breath. Don't trust in extortion. Don't take pride in stolen goods. The riches increase. Don't set your heart on them. These are things that we ought not to put our trust into. Don't trust man or man's ways. Don't trust extortion. Don't trust riches. Don't trust pride. Here's what you trust. Verse 11 and 12. Here's what you trust, and here's why you can trust it. One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard. That's a literary device they use in Eastern languages to kind of add weight to what's being said. That you, O God, are strong, and that you, O Lord, are loving. Surely you will reward each person according to what he has done. He gives us the reason why we can trust God. Two of them, actually. That he is strong, and he is loving. And I don't know about you, but I am thankful that he is not only strong, he's also loving. And that he's not only loving, he's also strong. Because here's what you have if you have a God that's only strong and not loving. Strength has to do with capacity. Love has to do with motivation. If God is only strong, but he's not loving, then you better be afraid. Because he has the capacity to do anything, but his motivation is not for you. The fact that he's loving means that he's inclined towards you. That means that he's willing to make self-sacrificing surrenders for you. It means that he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. He is loving. He's inclined towards you. He's favorable towards you. He has grace towards you. But if he was just loving and not strong, then yeah, you can have all the warm fuzzies in the world and you can have all the wishful thinking, but if he doesn't have the capacity to do what he said he would do, then he's not trustworthy. So the fact that he is strong and loving, that he is strong that we might fear, and he is loving that we would experience joy in his presence, that he is inclined towards us, we can trust that. We can trust him because he is strong, and we can trust him because he is loving. He has the capacity to do it, and the motivation behind it is positive, and it is good for us. And that last phrase, how many of you caught that last phrase? You will reward each person according to what he has done. Well, that sounds like religion, Pastor Mark. That sounds like do, 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 in order to get, get, get. What's the Old Testament? That was the game back then. That's the Old Testament. That's the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant says, if you do this, I will do this. And God has the capacity to do everything he promised to do. Human beings proved over and over in the Old Testament that they did not have the capacity to do what was expected of them. That they chose false gods, that they set up idols, that they went after the other things that they were not supposed to go after. And the covenant was broken by man, not by God. 
So yes, it absolutely is. And the way the old covenant was set up, he did reward each person according to what he did. That was true. But the Bible doesn't end in Malachi. That's the really good news. You flip from Malachi right over into the New Testament, into Matthew, and you start reading the gospel, the good news, the good news that religion had its time. But this new covenant is brand new. It's totally new, and it's better than ever. And in the new covenant, each person is rewarded based on what he did, based on what Jesus did. We put our faith and our trust in him. We trust him. And we receive the rewards that he earned for us. We receive the pardon that he earned for us. We receive the blessings that he earned for us. So it's no longer do, do, do in order to get, get, get. It's done because he did it, because he was sufficient. We put our hope and our faith and our trust in him and him alone. And we are rewarded based on what Christ has done. So which do you want? Do you want To be rewarded for what you have done or do you want to be rewarded for what Christ has done? Think about it. It's the end of a pretty good day. I might be inclined to think about this. But then I have a bad day and I definitely don't want what I deserve. I want grace. I might want justice for you and grace for me and that's the human condition. But as our hearts get transformed by that grace, we want grace for everyone. The preacher doesn't have to tell us to invite people to church. We can't stop inviting people to church because we want them to hear about the grace of God. We want them to get what they don't deserve. And that's the indication of a heart that's truly transformed by grace is that you want everybody to have it. You don't want to hoard it for yourself. You want to share it. You're not the toddler that wants to keep his toys over here and you you go play with that. Or There's some coloring pages over there. Don't play with my toys. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about throwing the gates open and getting as many people what they don't deserve as possible and inviting them and sharing our faith and sharing and and discipling and inviting and evangelizing and doing all of these things as a response to what we have received because we want everyone to have it. That's the good news of the gospel. So the bottom line, if you've been waiting for it, the bottom line is, is simply an exhortation. Trust God at all times for all things, first and foremost, with your salvation, with your eternity, with your security before him. You can trust him. You can trust him. He is infinitely trustworthy. He is strong and he is loving. He is strong enough to do what he said he would do. And he's loving enough to have your best interest in mind as he does it. He's reliable. He's dependable. You can trust him. You can trust him with your life. You can trust him with your salvation. You can trust him with your eternity. As we think about trusting God and trusting other, you can trust him with your honor. You don't have to put that in the hands of others. You can trust him with your past, your present, and your future. You can trust him with your hopes and your dreams. You can trust him with your regrets and your shortcomings and your fears. You can trust him with your emotions. We've been talking about that for the last eight weeks. And Psalms makes it crystal clear that we can bring our emotions to God. We can trust our emotions from God. We don't, we don't have to hide anything from God. That he is trustworthy. That we can trust him with our relationships. We can trust him with our finances. We can trust him with our health. In fact, I'm excited. The next series that we're going to do is a series titled Made to Thrive. Because you were not made to simply breathe in and out for 80 or 90 or 100 years and just get by. We were made to thrive. 
Thriving was part of God's plan for us. And we're going to look at what it means to thrive in five different areas of life. We're going to look at thriving spiritually, thriving emotionally, thriving relationally, and thriving financially, and thriving physically. And so I want to encourage you to make it to as many of those as you possibly can. I know it's summer and we're going different directions. We've got vacations, we've got plans, we've got people coming, people going. Make it to as many as you can. Catch the podcast for the ones you can't. Invite somebody to church. Invite somebody to come. Maybe somebody you know at work or in your family that's struggling and just barely getting by and say, you know we were made to thrive and God's word has insights and wisdom and exhortations for us to be able to thrive, to thrive spiritually and emotionally and relationally and physically and financially. So we'll be kicking that off in a couple of weeks. I hope that you'll be there. But more than that, as I always say, I hope you respond to God's word in faith today. Faith is, is rooted in trust that you would trust God with something that you maybe have kept off the table or that you would intercede on behalf of somebody who really needs to trust God in some area of their life or that you've gained some insight in how you can communicate the gospel to somebody who is far from God. However you choose to respond, respond in faith. Come to an altar. We're going to sing a song that's rooted right in this scripture. So I pray that you will reflect upon that. And if God moves you to to intercede for somebody, put a prayer request on the cross or come down to an altar, that you won't let anything hold you back from that. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for your incredible love for us. We thank you that you are strong and you are loving, that your love is deep. We thank you, God, that that you deeply desire what is best for us, and you know that it's found in relationship with you. And so help us, O oh God, to find our rest in you and you alone, to put our hope in you, to find you to be our rock and our refuge. And Lord, for the one that needs to trust you for salvation today, Lord, I pray that nothing would hold them back from reaching out and taking the hand that's been offered to them, putting their hope and their trust for eternity in you, beginning a relationship with you, and learning to trust you even more. Help each and every one of us to respond in faith and to trust you more every single day. It's in Jesus' name we pray.